So this evening we will be in Deuteronomy chapter 12, just one chapter tonight. Uh, so just as a, a brief reminder where we are, we are in the middle uh, of a long section of Deuteronomy, which spans from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through Deuteronomy chapter 26, which we are calling an extended commentary on the Decalogue or an extended commentary on the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, which God through Moses provided <coughs> to Israel again back in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And last time we were together, we finished up at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 11, which uh, was the end of the commentary, as it were, on the first commandment. And so uh, tonight in Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, we will use this chapter as a brief uh, but important commentary on the second commandment. The second commandment can be found back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. It reads this way. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So, <coughs> excuse me, this second commandment is a, uh, a warning against idolatry. And uh, we will see that here a several uh, mentions of second commandment violations here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. So let's begin in verse 1. This is Moses speaking. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and you shall obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings, which you will vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you, 
Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. So let's pause there after verse 14. So you can see here very quickly in verse 2, this uh, command of the Lord to utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Verse 3, and you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. So Asherim is a, uh, a female a deity of the Canaanites. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and you shall obliterate their name from that place. And so we see very clearly here in verses two and three, uh, this um, uh, prohibition from idolatry. Um, not, and this would be not just uh, it, the, the uh, idolatry or worship of the Canaanite idols, but you see in verse five, Moses says, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which your God shall choose. So God here is prescribing uh, very clear boundaries for how he is to be worshipped. He is not to be worshipped by Israel on any high mountain or hill or under any green tree. But he will choose a place where he will reside uh, uh, from uh, within the tribes in the land of Canaan. And so uh, this is a very important boundary, which Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, places on his worship. And we can see here in at the end of verse five, so he's going to establish his name there in a, an unyet, or a yet unnamed place for his dwelling. And there he says to the Israelites through Moses, you shall come. And then in verse six, and there, you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and so on and so forth. And so God is very clear about the fact that eventually when the Israelites get into conquer Canaan, they will only be allowed to worship lawfully Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, in the place that he will choose. Okay, this is extremely important and we will come back to it at the end. Verse seven, there also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings. <coughs> and this concept or motif of rejoicing, we will see here in Deuteronomy chapter 12, three times. And I'll come back to that at the end as well, Lord willing. But what's being referred to here, uh, probably primarily, uh, are the three feast days that the Israelites were commanded to celebrate. Uh, as part of the Mosaic law. And so the, on those feast days, of course, three times a year, the Israelites were commanded, at least all of the men, to come from wherever they were uh, in the promised land to come and meet up uh, in the land of Canaan. Or I'm sorry, in, in Jerusalem, ultimately, which will be the place sort of to, to give the end away. But they were called to come together three times a year and to feast. So uh, verse 10, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring 
all that I command you. Again, the offerings, the tithes, and you can see the details of those offerings back in the first five chapters of Leviticus. We've been through those back in our study of Leviticus. And those are free will offerings. Those are atonement offerings. And then, of course, in verse 12, the rejoicing is mentioned again for the three feasts. And, of course, the, you speaking to the men, your sons and daughters, your male <coughs> and female servants, and also the Levites who are within their gates. So remember, the Levites do not have any land in the land of Canaan. They will not be apportioned any land. However, they are to be cared for, and they are also to participate in the feast days as all of Israel goes to the place that God will identify. And then again, verse 13, be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you see. This would be in direct contrast to the Canaanites, which we saw in verses 2 and 3. We pick up in verse 15. However, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. You are not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or new wine or oil or the firstborn of your herd or flock or any of your votive offerings which you vow or your free offering, free will offerings or the contribution of your hand. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose. He says again in verse 18, you and your son and daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. Be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. So again, here we can compare um, this uh, the verses 15 and following in Deuteronomy chapter 12 uh, with back in Leviticus 17. So Leviticus 17 comes up a couple of times here. In Leviticus chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, some commentators believe that in Leviticus 17, verses 3 and 4, that while the Israelites are moving around um, the wilderness on their way to the land of Canaan, that all of their meat needed to be slaughtered uh, just outside of the tabernacle. Okay, And that's because, as you remember, all of the camps of the Israelites were encamped around that tabernacle. And so it wasn't a very far trip to bring uh, those animals to the front of the tent of meeting and then subsequently to slaughter them there and then to take back with them to their tents to enjoy meat for dinner. Okay, um, And so that is what some of the commentators believe is being said there. There's clearly then a distinction here in Deuteronomy chapter 12 beginning in verse 15. There's a however at the beginning of verse 15. You may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. And so um, for those commentators who believe that Leviticus 17 is prescribing the killing of any animal uh, outside of the tabernacle for the purpose of eating that meat, uh, even not as a sacrifice. This would be actually a change in the prescription for the Israelites. And of course, the purpose of that, um, if that is the case, makes sense, right? Because as the Israelites move into Canaan, which is clearly 
a much larger parcel of land than the land that they were living on encamped around the tabernacle, it would not be reasonable or practical to demand that the Israelites would have to come to the tabernacle every time they wanted to slaughter uh, any animal for the purpose of eating meat for dinner. And so God now through Moses is um, changing, if you, if you will, or relaxing the law for slaughtering an animal so that the Israelites can enjoy meat where they live in the land of Canaan, as long as that meat and that animal is not set aside for any type of offering, whether it's a free will offering or a votive offering or any type of sin offering, those types of things. Those animals must be kept and then they must be transported to the place that the Lord, your God, verse 18, will choose to set his name. And again, we see uh, this is all about the, this calling of the Israelites to a singular place to go and worship God helps them, frankly, to resist the temptation to, to, to worship just any place, which was clearly the practice of the Canaanites. They had to bring their offering to God where he was so that their offering would be accepted by Yahweh, their sins could be forgiven and atoned for in that place. In verse 16, uh, a prohibition with which we are familiar, uh, Moses says to the Israelites, only you shall not eat the blood that is of the animal that is slaughtered for food. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. This is a prohibition we have seen before. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the blood uh, back when we studied in Leviticus 17. And so you could go back there uh, to refresh your memory about that prohibition. It's in Leviticus 17 that God tells us and he tells the Israelites that the life is in the blood and it is not to be drunk. It is to be poured out and covered over with dirt. Uh, and we spent a lot of time on that uh, at the time back in our study in Leviticus. Uh, for here though, uh, it seems uh, clear that at least one of the reasons why the Israelites were forbidden uh, to um, eat the blood or, or drink the blood uh, here in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 16, uh, is because that would be uh, in contrast, very much in contrast to the pagan rituals of the Canaanites themselves. And of course, uh, I assume that many, many of you are familiar with uh, those kinds of pagan rituals, even up to and including the modern era. And so God forbids that eating or drinking of the blood. And again, you can see the details of that in back in Leviticus 17. So we'll pick up in verse 20. When the Lord your God extends your border as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you desire to eat meat, then you may eat meat, whatever you desire. If the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter of your herd and flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates whatever you desire. Just as a gazelle or a deer is eaten, so you shall eat it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the ground like water. You shall not eat it, verse 25, in order that it may be well with you and your sons after you, for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Only your holy things, which you may have, and your votive offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. Again, these would be the tithes and other kinds of offerings as prescribed by the Mosaic law. 
Verse 27, And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the flesh. Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, in order that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So obviously here in Deuteronomy chapter 12, there's a lot of repetition. Um, and so uh, this should stand out to us as something that is uh, very much on the forefront of God's mind. It's very important to him. We see these multiple uh, repeated prohibitions of not to worship Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, just anywhere, but to do so in the place that he chooses. He says that at least three or four times here in this chapter, maybe even more. Um, he reminds them again of the prohibition against eating blood. And so these are very uh, serious things that the Israelites uh, have to think about and remember. Obviously, God takes the worship of him uh, very, very seriously. And it was for Israel's good that he reminds them over and over and over again. Verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I may also do likewise? <coughs> you shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Verse 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And so we see here in these last few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 12, we see again a reminder to the Israelites um, about second commandment violations, uh, not just idolatry, but the nature of the worship itself. They should not be inquiring as to how the Canaanites worship their gods. That is of no interest to them. The only thing that should be important to the Israelites, and actually, frankly, the only thing that should be important to God's people in all times is how does God, the one true God of the universe, desire to be worshipped? That it should be a question that we would all be asking ourselves and, of course, going to God's word to seek out the answer to that question. And then a very somber verse, verse 31, this, uh, these abominable acts which the Lord hates, uh, which reach their, um, I guess, lowest point, if you will, I almost said zenith, but lowest point, that the Canaanites were certainly in the practice of burning their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And this is not the first time that we have seen this. We saw this uh, this uh, act and this the prohibition of this act for the Israelites as far back as Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. And of course, uh, these are demonic, pagan rituals uh, for human beings to offer uh, their sons and daughters as human sacrifices to their gods elsewhere in the Pentateuch uh, and in the Bible, uh, God says that uh, such a thought never even entered into his mind. It is such an abominable act. 
So uh, relatively quick chapter this evening. Let me just um, circle around and talk a little bit about a few things. Again, in the chapter, multiple times, uh, God uh, emphasizes that the Israelites were not to worship just in any place, but they should worship at the place that the Lord, their God, would choose. And and so um, the Old Testament, Old Covenant Israelite religion was indeed a come and see religion. Uh, we talked a little bit about this uh, the last time we were together when I was talking about um, the importance of that very thin tract of land that we call the land of Canaan on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, having that very thin tract of land be uh, so important uh, to the ancient world as it was uh, the connection point between Africa in the south and Europe in the west and Asia in the east. And so God uh, chooses to give that land to Abraham's descendants and to set his name there so that when all peoples of the earth uh, would um, very naturally pass through that thin tract of land uh, for the purpose of travel and commerce, um, they would come into uh, that, that land and they would see the glory of Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, and they would see the worship of Yahweh and they would see uh, a little bit of foreshadowing here, the joy of Yahweh's people as they celebrated uh, and worshipped him. Uh, and that was their means, in some sense, of evangelism to the world. Very much come and see. Now, I mentioned also last week that from the New Covenant perspective, um, th there is definitely a contrast, right? The New Covenant worship is not a come and see kind of worship. It is a go and tell kind of worship. We can see that uh, multiple ways. So, so what the, the first way is there's no longer just one place where people are called to come and worship, but there is now one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Christ Jesus. And Paul says that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And so the one place has been transformed by Jesus, our Lord himself, into one mediator. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, I'm sure you remember that, that Jesus has the interaction uh, between himself and the Samaritan woman uh, at the well. And uh, she gets into a bit of a theological discussion uh, with Jesus about where the right place is to worship. And of course, he corrects her theology as a Samaritan. She was not correct in her theology. She did not have the right place for worship. Jesus corrects her and rightly identifies the old covenant location of the worship of Yahweh, which of course was ultimately Jerusalem. And we will come back to that in a second. But then Jesus says to her that there is a day coming, right? when it will no longer be about a place of worship, but the Father desires those worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And obviously, uh, that would be worshiping him through the atoning work of the one mediator, Jesus Christ. And so very interesting interaction there that also 
uh, describes that transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. So again, in contrast with the old covenant evangelism, which was very much come and see, we have this new covenant evangelism, uh, which I trust that we are all engaged in. And that is very much a go and tell. Jesus says in the Great Commission that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and tell, teach them all that I've commanded you, baptizing them, and so on and so forth. So as I did mention, of course, ultimately the one place that God chose for his name to reside uh, was Jerusalem. That was ultimately fulfilled uh, under the kingship of Solomon, which, by the way, all of the promises of Genesis 15 were also fulfilled under the kingdom of Solomon. You can read about those uh, in First Kings chapter 4, but, but ultimately uh, that is fulfilled by Solomon in his uh, building of the first temple, this temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Of course, the tabernacle of Yahweh was not always in Jerusalem. It began as we go through uh, the rest of the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle first resided in a place called <coughs> Shiloh, and it was there for some time. It fell into a bit of disrepair, if you will, and you can find that out as you read through the rest of the Old Testament. It uh, makes a couple of brief stops in a couple of other places around the land of Canaan, but ultimately uh, ends up in Jerusalem under the leadership of David and then subsequently under the construction of Solomon's temple. And so that is the place, ultimately, that God chooses to set his name. And of course, we read in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation, that we are all looking forward to a new Jerusalem, which is still the place which God will set his name and his glory. And this is our great hope. Finally, as we wrap up tonight, I want to come back to this motif of rejoicing uh, here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Uh, the, the command to rejoice is given three different times. It's given in verse 7, it is given in verse 12, and it is given in verse 18. And so uh, what was ringing in my ears uh, as I was studying uh, for this evening was um, uh, Paul in the, his epistle to the church at Philippi, that is um, sometimes referred to as the epistle of joy. Uh, clearly, the church in Philippi uh, was one of the Apostle Paul's favorite churches, if not uh, his favorite church. And he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And, and um, some form of the word joy appears many times, actually, in that very short epistle. And so I guess finally, as I finish up tonight, I was I was uh, thinking and meditating on this this command to rejoice. And, and, and what also came into my mind, so when I preached a couple of Sundays ago, I was in Nehemiah chapter 8, and, and I read um, verses 1 through 8. And at that time, I was making the point how Jesus was uh, functioning in his role as priest, where uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he was not only giving the law, but he was explaining the law, which and the point that I was making from Nehemiah chapter 8 was that Ezra was reading the law and the Levitical priests at that time uh, were explaining the law to the people who were standing there and listening to the law being read. 
And then and I stopped at chapter eight just because that was uh, all the further I needed to read, uh, frankly, to make the point that I was making. I do, however, want to read a couple of additional verses from Nehemiah chapter eight. And then these are relevant to the exhortations to rejoice. So um, this is after the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt uh, under the leadership of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah as the exiles are returning from Babylon and from Persia. And they're coming back and, and rebuilding the city. Ultimately, they will rebuild uh, the temple in a much smaller uh, form than it was, of course, under Solomon. But the wall of Jerusalem is complete. And now they gathered in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 8 as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra to scribe, the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra, he goes up on this wooden platform and he begins to read the law of the Lord. And there's all these uh, Levites standing around him. Verse 5, he opens the book in the sight of all the people. He was standing above all the people. And when he opened the book, the law of the Lord, which we are studying through right now, all the people stood up. Verse 6, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, the priests they did, translating to give the sense so they understood the reading. Verse 9 of Nehemiah chapter 8. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And so we see here that the people of Israel, who are hearing the law read to them, uh, perhaps many or most of them, for the first time in their lives since they have now returned into the land of Canaan from exile. And they're hearing the law of the Lord and all of the expectations that the law has placed on them as we've been studying these many years now through the Pentateuch. And they are mourning and weeping because they know um, not only have they not kept the moral aspects of the law, but they have not kept the worship aspects of the law. And they also come to realize, I believe, that the reason they spent all those years in exile was because their fathers had so egregiously violated the law of God. And so they come to the place of great conviction. They are mourning and weeping for good reason. And in many ways, that is the purpose of the law. Perhaps not the only purpose of the law, but one of the primary purposes of the law is to bring conviction to sinners. And so, yes, we should go forth and, and preach the gospel, but, but we should also go forth and preach the law first as well, that um, by the Spirit of God, those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ uh, might come to a place of conviction. So anyway, the point is, at this time, as, as Ezra's reading the law, the Israelites who are hearing the law are mourning and weeping. Verse 10, Then Ezra said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, 
and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. And I just point out there in verse 12 of Nehemiah chapter 8 that that word celebrate literally means to make a great rejoicing. That's what that word means, right? And so I would say this as we as we wrap up this evening. When we gather together to worship the Lord on Sunday mornings, yes, many of us come in um, to that gathering uh, with anxieties and burdens and sorrows. And, and then when we hear the law preached from God's word, it, 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 in a sense, adds to all of those things because it adds to that burden of conviction that we have not kept the law. We have, we have violated the law. And then we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What has been done for us? How we who were in a spiritual exile in Babylon, in Persia, we have been brought back to the place where God has set his name, specifically the man, the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And, and that presentation of the gospel and the assurance of sins forgiven and the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which of course we at Abiding Grace Church celebrate every week, is truly intended to be a time for rejoicing. Not because, not because we come to the place where we realize that we deserve anything, but because we recognize what God has done for us. Just as God had brought those Israelites after so many decades and even centuries, God brought them back into the land that he had promised them and put them in the place where he had set his name. And he did that by his mighty right hand. And he did that as an act of his grace. So we who have been redeemed and brought out of our spiritual exile, we have been saved by the blood of the lamb. And that should cause us to rejoice even in the midst of our anxieties and our burdens and our sorrows. And so I take this exhortation to rejoice, this threefold exhortation to rejoice in Deuteronomy chapter 12 very seriously. So uh, may God bless all of you. And as you look forward to the next time you are together with your fellowships on Sunday morning, may it be a time uh, where your burdens are lifted and you can rejoice in the presence of your brothers and your sisters, and most importantly, in the presence of your God who has saved you by the blood of his son. Amen.